Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. I read the business books so you don't have to. Because electric car technology was seen as feminine, many men then didn't want these cars because they were ladies' cars. So these associations between electric car technology and femininity became a commercial problem for the early electric car um, you know, industry. That's Katrine Marcel, author of the book Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored. It's a rollicking read and I couldn't put this one down. But first, congrats to Liza Gunn, winner of Powerful by Paddy McCord. Remember, all our books are available to revisit or listen to if you've missed an episode. And I'd love it if you followed Books at Work on Instagram too. On to our speed read of Mother of Invention. Katrine Marcel takes us through an eye-opening journey of a world of innovation and invention that is shaped by gender, where the invention of a petrol car and an electric car happened at the same time, but the petrol car took precedent in large part because the electric vehicle was considered a woman's car where the wheeled suitcase created by a woman was ignored for years until a man started using it, where computer programming was low-paid work done by women. Now, let's flesh this one out a little more. The whole business of tending to computers was seen as an extension of women's nature. In the 1950s, IBM even measured assembly costs for its computers in girl hours. In the mid-1960s, computing's image started to change. Broadly speaking, the work was the same, but the industry had become more important to society. It dawned on male managers that things like the tax payment system and cruise missile programs were being processed through computers, and could they really be left in the hands of low-paid, chain-smoking girls in miniskirts? So a public scheme was launched to encourage men to take an interest in computers. Women trained up men to be their bosses. Women left the industry in droves. From the mid-1980s, computer programming went from being female-dominated, low-status and low-paid, to male-dominated, highly-paid and high-status. So from the ideas to the funding of them, the world's financial system has also stifled women's ideas and innovation. Take the credit system. Women live in a permanent female credit crunch. 80% of all female-owned businesses have an unmet need for credit. Katrine argues that the financial system wasn't built for women. Women are considered a greater risk than men. Women give birth, have less income and fewer assets. The credit crunch and financial system bias plays a huge part in determining which innovations become a reality and which don't. In 2019, 11% of venture capital funds in the UK went to startups founded entirely by women. 83% of deals made by British venture capitalists had no women on their founding teams. At the current rate of investment, it'll take about 25 years for women to get their hands on just 10% of the money. Today's entrepreneurs are more dependent on venture capital than ever before, and that creates a big problem for women. Instead of changing the financial system so women aren't shut out, the system asks women to take more risks, to present ideas that crush, that disrupt, that dominated. What if we changed that and we talked about innovation like this? Repairing rather than crushing, helping rather than disrupting, contributing rather than dominating. Katrine wonders what difference that would make to the ideas that got financial support. 
The book is full of intriguing examples of how history has treated women's ideas and women's role in innovation, but it also looks to the future. Where does the future take us? Many experts say we are now living in the second machine age. Robots are coming, most tasks will be automated, everything will change. Katrine asks just how far can machines, robots and automation go? Machines have a hard time with emotional intelligence, building human relationships and bringing out the best in others. It's easy for male futurists to assert that if machines simply get higher IQs, then the whole gig is up for humankind. But the fact is, the knowledge economy has always been based on things many futurists don't pay attention to. The labour of caring, building trust, dealing with emotionally different situations and with people have been an invisible part of the economy because we mostly deem these skills as feminine. When we realise just how many people we have ignored, we also realise how much untapped potential we are actually sitting on. Throughout history, innovation has been held back by gender in all these different ways, and we've been inventing with one hand tied behind our backs. Katrine asks us to imagine what we could achieve if we cut that rope. Let's talk to her now. We have on the line Katrine Marcel, author of Mother Invention, a cracking and rollicking good read that I absolutely loved. So welcome, Katrine. Thank you. Uh, so we always start books at work with a question of where in the world are you and what's a view out your window today? So I am in a small English village in England, obviously, um, between London and Cambridge, which is where I live. And the view out of my window is where well, you can't see my it's evening here and it is getting dark. I see a few trees, but not much more. Oh, well, that's, that paints a lovely picture of what it's like in the UK at the moment, particularly from here in New Zealand, where it's very hot and very summery, which is lovely. Um, so I've done a little speed read of the book, which I haven't been able to capture everything in it because there are so many amazing ideas in it. And I was really intrigued to get your perspective about how you came up with the premise of this book and the conclusions and put it all together because it's so clever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the premise of the book is that, you know, good ideas get ignored in the economy because because of how we devalue women and women's ideas and also the things that we think of for different reasons to be feminine. Um, so that I guess that would be the premise of the book. I think me starting to write it had more probably to do with my mother, who was a computer programmer and um, when she had me she went back to university and she studied computer science which still you know this was the early 1980s was still a reasonably natural thing for somebody with her background to do she used to work at an art gallery and with the administration of library catalogues and um, and computer science was still quite female dominated it wasn't very high status it wasn't terribly well paid it was sort of a stable career and she she was a computer programmer throughout my whole childhood. And and it always fascinated me thinking back at it, because I remember when I was little, how all of her managers almost were women um, and then how it changed and how the tech industry got you know incredibly male dominated and was something completely different when my mother retired. So this concept of, you know, 
technology, a profession being gendered in one way and then being gendered in a different way. It was something that being somebody who writes about economics had fascinated me for a long time. And I wanted to do something sort of in that sphere. That story about the computer programmer, I didn't realise that was your mum, because that's such a, a really interesting piece in the book. And you know, a really good example of that um, kind of gender bias, if you call it that. So I wanted to talk about a couple of the other examples in the book. And there's a story in there about uh, the uh, development of the first petrol car, a path that could have gone down towards an electric car. And just wondering if you could tell us that story um, and, and what you discovered there. In the beginning of the automobile era, we actually had electric cars. It's a quite an old form of technology in that sense. There were electric cars and petrol-driven cars and cars, you know, driven using steam technology. And um, and all of these different forms of technologies were competing. Um, and what I'm interested in and what I write about in the book is how electric cars pretty soon became seen as women's cars. And they were marketed towards women. Uh, and there was this assumption that a car that was safer, quiet, much more comfortable, like the electric car, you didn't have to sort of go out and crank the engine going, which was a very dangerous thing with the petrol driven cars you could start it comfortably from the driver's seat all of these things made people assume it was a car for women it was even it was product developed with women in mind electric cars sort of in the late 1800s early 1900s were the first cars that you could drive in a skirt that were the first cars with a roof because there was this assumption that you know men didn't care if they got wet in the wet in the rain but but you know women did so you know let's put a roof on these cars um and the ads from that time are are, are just spectacular with these sort of women with big hats you know getting into these beautiful electric vehicles but what then pretty soon happened was that because electric car technology was seen as feminine many men then didn't want these cars because they were ladies cars so these associations between electric car technology and femininity became a commercial problem for the early electric car um, you know industry and it held back the size of their market and this wasn't the main reason to why you know electric cars then disappeared for you know a very long time almost 100 years um, but it was certainly one of the reasons and um, and you know we ended up building a whole world for petrol driven technology and obviously now we're trying to do things differently and would things have been differently had we not sort of devalued the electric car because of these feminine associations such a big question imagine imagine what the world have been like would have been mm. like well it's hard you can't, i can't imagine um just another example, um, the suitcase with wheels. Tell us that yes. story. <laughs> yes, that's how the book starts because it's, you know, the book is all about how, you know, innovation has been held back by sort of our ideas of gender. And the suitcase with wheels is such a classic, you know, mystery of innovation. The fact that, you know, we've had the technology of the wheel for 5,000 years We've applied it to lots of things, you know, cars and bicycles and ferries wheels and hamster wheels and whatnot, but we didn't put wheels on suitcases until 1972. 
So many management thinkers and, you know, even Nobel Prize winning economists have thought about this. You know, how come that we managed to put, you know, two men on the moon before we came up with this idea that, you know, wheels on suitcases are a good idea. Uh, and they've had lots of different types of explanation to why. I looked into the story and, you know, what I discovered is, is in the book. And that is that, you know, it had to do with gender. There were actually suitcases with wheels well before 1972, but they were almost all niche products for women, you know, and nobody thought that this idea would, would catch on or invested in it or, or anything like that, because there was this assumption that no man will ever roll a suitcase, you know. <laughs> a man has to prove that he's a real man uh, by carrying a suitcase and you know, the industry just assumed that, you know, there will never be any male consumers for this product. Women might buy a suitcase with wheels, but they're not a big enough market. You know, if a woman travels, she travels with a man, was the thinking, you know, even in the 1970s still. Uh, um, and, um, you know, so she she doesn't need this, this, this new product either. Um, and then this this idea ends up, you know, really, really catching on in the in the 1980s when, you know, gender roles are changing, the labor market is shifting, women are starting, you know, getting into sort of um, management positions at sort of a bigger scale, starting to go on business trips, traveling alone, you know, so women start using this product, and then the men think mm, maybe 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 a good idea and and obviously the suitcase with wheels ends up completely disrupting the whole global luggage industry but uh, we couldn't see that this idea was was simple and genius because we were blinded by this idea of of uh, of gender of you know what a man is and should be and what a woman is and should be so those are just three little well, three good great examples in the book the book's peppered with these amazing examples and I'm really intrigued to kind of go a bit deeper with what these examples tell us about how gender and femininity has impacted on on innovation like you know can you sum that up pithily <laughs> <laughs> yes well I'll try but I think I think you know we do tend to think of innovation and the forces of technology as these neutral forces that are just something that's pushing everything along you know that we our role is just to you know forecast you know how many robots are coming you know what's the technology that's going to define the economy in the next you know two decades and we forget that they are not neutral forces you know we are the ones you know funding the machines building the machines inventing the machines and you know and creating them and creating institutions to sort of regulate them and we come into all of these things that shape innovation shaped by our biases um, and gender being a very you know, big one. And it makes us, you know, and if we're not aware of this, we do miss great ideas. You know, we didn't see the full potential of the electric car because of an idea about men and women. You know, we didn't realize that suitcases on wheels was was genius because, <laughs> because we were sort of stuck in this thinking. So it, it really is something that, that blinds us. And, um, and we need to do something about it because, you know, innovation is, you know, we have 
there's so many challenges in the world right now and innovation is we need all the all the good ideas that we can find and, and get and develop and we simply can't afford to to think like this anymore and and I guess that's why I why I wanted to to write this book. So you say we've got to do something about it. <laughs> You've written mm. a book. What what else can we do? Like as, as you know, one person in a team, or as a leader, or looking for ideas. What 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 can we do about it? So I mean, firstly, so the bigger kind of economic question, you know, has a lot to do with you know with funding for for women's mm. ideas, which is you know if you look at something like like venture capital for example so i'm i'm you know from from sweden one you know one of the most um gender equal you know economies in 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 the world but but still if you look at venture capital you know 99% of swedish venture capital goes to men and it's very similar all over the world um and obviously that is a, a huge problem yes there are other ways to to fund innovations and new businesses than venture capital but venture capital is very dominant and if men have almost a complete monopoly on that type of funding that means that you know the business many of the sort of business models that will you know shape our our economies and you know new medications and ai and everything will be developed almost exclusively by men and and that's a problem i mean particularly with you know women you know being more and more powerful you know, for example, as, as consumers with 80% of all consumer decisions are now thought to be, you know, influenced by women. So obviously, if you're a, a business leader or, or, or anybody in this sphere, you know, um, you need to you need to think about these things. Now, I wanted to kind of shift and talk a little bit more about the future, not just about innovation. Um, but you know, if we're if we're thinking about AI and robots coming and concern about jobs. There's a lot of stuff in the book that talks about the sorts of skills that are needed to manage through that. And yeah, I'd like to kind of dig into that a little bit. Keen to understand what's what's your standout observation about the impact on people and the role of of people in the world of AI and robots and technology in the future and how um, femininity, women, gender can play a role in that. It's potentially something incredibly interesting when it comes to to this whole, you know, second machine age that, you know, they talk about that we're in uh, and gender. Um, and we don't, again, there are two things we don't necessarily tend to think about, you know, all of these headlines about the robots coming and taking that job or this job uh, connected to, to gender. But one of the points I, I make in the book is, you know, looking back at uh, periods of very intense technological change, you know, the, the first machine age in the, in the 1800s, you know, um, actually had huge gendered uh, effects on the labor market with, you know, new machines coming into the factories, in the first phase, you know, making a lot of male workers unemployed, factory owners, you know, here in England, then hiring women and children instead, and, you know, ending up in a situation with a lot of unemployed men sitting at home, lots of women being breadwinners. 
and and you know somebody like you know I talk about Friedrich Engels the you know one of the founders of, of communism who saw this and was you know outraged because because of these new machines sort of upending the natural sort of gender order of society and and looking at today if you know we're in a second machine age they say and we can I mean at least if you read all the, stu- the studies coming out on, you know, which which um, parts of the labor market will be automated and which will not. Actually, there is a real gendered thing in there where many economists do assume that a lot of the professions that women are in will be harder to automate because, you know, robots are good at certain things and they're not very good at you know, um, jobs that require a lot of contact with other human beings, you know, care work, um, all of these things that women have tended to specialize in for different reasons. And that could mean that, you know, the same thing will happen in the second machine age, which is now as happened in the first machine age, which is that, you know, it's actually more male workers that get replaced by, by machines. Um, so what do we do? Do we end up with all of these unemployed men that we have to retrain into, you know, nurses and care workers? And um, and also what what does that mean for skills? What skills will be needed in an economy where the robots come in and do certain things and human beings have to sort of specialize more into what we're good at, particularly good at, which has a lot to do with, you know, emotional intelligence and relationship building and communication. Um, And those skills are also skills that we tend to see as as feminine uh, and maybe even look down on a bit. And maybe that will change as a consequence of, of technology. What are the sorts of skills that you think will be needed in the second machine age? You mentioned there about nurses and caring, that kind of human side of things. Can you yeah. explain that a little bit more? Well, I mean, one sort of example that's often given to you to you know what could happen with automation is you know they look at what's already happened to for example radiologists so you know that's a profession where you know artificial intelligence is you know is very good at doing you know reading certain types of medical images uh and is doing that really really well and you know one could think that oh that would mean that you know the salaries for radiologists will Will, will have gone down in the last couple of years uh, because they are being replaced by artificial intelligence. That is not what has happened. Actually, salaries for radiologists has, you know, tends to have gone up. Uh, but it's the content of the work they do that has changed. So now they are, they are not doing the bits that the artificial intelligence is doing better, but they have to do a lot more sort of you know, being these experts communicating with other, you know, other medical experts between departments at the hospital, you know, they basically have to add on these skills of yes, knowing all the technical stuff, but also being experts at communicating to both to machines and to humans and translating between the two. And I think in that example which is something that has already happened we can see a little bit of you know what really could happen in in the future it is you know a bigger emphasis on these you know we call them soft skills but um and and you know being able to to do this both communicating between 
between other other humans and between the machines and the humans and um and that is a, a slightly it's a different it's a different skill set and also obviously if we get an economy where you know there is very big demand for human workers in the care sector then all of those skills will will you know will become you know more front and center in the economy and there is potentially something very hopeful in that that you know the the robots and the machines could could make it possible for us to to be more human really I do want to touch on one example in the book around Serena Williams because I <laughs> I love tennis. <laughs> um, and you you got this lovely description of automation and robots won't take over the world <laughs> uh, because <laughs> there's this concept of we can do more than we can explain. And yes. Um, it's kind of hurt my brain when I was reading that, but I totally got it. So um, can you can you maybe bring yeah. it to life a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so it's 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 called Polyanese paradox to um, in in you know in, in the, too many economists, and it's it's <laughs> it's this concept of that you know you you can do much more than you can explain. So Serena Williams is. Even if Serena Williams came on this call and she explained everything uh, to us uh, about what she does on the court, that doesn't mean that you know uh, you or and certainly not me would be able to <laughs> go out on the court and do what Serena Williams does. Um, and that is, and that's that's exactly it. You know, just because because her knowledge and her skill is, is embodied, right? It's in her body. And that's what all of those years of training, you know, and, you know, the, the talent and everything else, um, you know, does. Um, it's a kind of, you know, embodied intelligence um, that enables her to do that. And we all have that, you know, we can, you know, hopefully drive a car and, but it's very hard for us to say exactly what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing behind the wheel. Um, and and that's that's again you know we we know it but we can't really put it into words and this is actually something that has been a big challenge for the the you know the development of you know of artificial intelligence because you know um you know before machine learning um you, you really had to and you still do to a large extent have to be able to explain to a machine what it should do before it can do it um and that makes things like teaching, you know, self-driving cars quite complex because if we can't, there's so many things that a human being does behind the wheel that's that's really, really tricky to, to explain in the way that a machine can, can understand. And what this means for the economy is, is basically that, that, you know, we there might be a future where we can automate everything. I mean, who knows? But um Currently, a lot of these, you know, embodied tasks um, are very, are very hard to automate. You know, we used to think that if we could get a computer that could beat Gary Kasparov at chess, you know, which we did quite a long time ago, that will automatically mean that everything else in the, you know, in the economy could be automated. But it's turned out that it's much harder to, to automate something like, like cleaning a house, right? Uh, than it is automating, you know, uh, 
amazing chess playing because that is sort of in the physical reality and all the knowledge that we take for granted that we have that makes it possible for us to clean our homes in a in a reasonable way um they are extremely 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 hard for for robots so there's this bodily intelligence that we have and that obviously serena williams has in spades <laughs> that um the machines are not very good at and that also gives us some kind of clues into you know the future of the labor market that's the end of our time thank you katrine it's been really wonderful to hear you bring to life the words in the book so thank you so much for joining books at work thank you on to the mother of invention take five one wake up to how good ideas have historically been ignored because of gender Two, step away from a man's perspective on innovation. Embrace what women and other diverse ideas can deliver. Three, change up how we finance ideas. Look for ways to invest in women's ideas and innovation. Four, don't assume robots and automation will kill jobs. Elevate and value skills like caring and emotional intelligence. And five, create a future that isn't biased by gender. Learn from the past. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's our Books at Work episode done and dusted. Books that work, making work better.